You're listening to episode 50 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. 50. For 50 weeks we've been talking about the writing life and discovering exciting new projects. It's Thursday 27th of June 2019 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. I'm Simon Jones and I'm joined today by none other than Chris Gribble, Chief Exec here at the National Centre for Writing. Hello Chris. Hi Simon. How are you today? I'm alright thank you. 50 weeks, that's pretty much a year. It is, which coincidentally is also how long the National Centre has been open. I know. I, I think we launched on the 19th of right, June. Okay. Um, so I think it was last Monday or Tuesday was the exact anniversary. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, the, the big day that Dragon Hall finally opened again after being closed for half a year or so. A bit more yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've been in sort of squatting in the building and using parts of it for three years, for two and a half years. Then we shut it uh, completely for about uh, 10 months of the 12 month build period and then opened again in sort of 20 some or the 19th or 20th of June last year. Yeah, it feels a long time ago now. It does. <laughs> it was a very long time ago. Um, and I suppose what not everyone listening will be aware of is quite how long a process this was because the, the building work and the fundraising was significant, but this has been a project that's been in your life for even longer than that. Yeah, I think it's been, I think, 2009, I think, 2009-10, the first sort of ideas mm. around it happened. And then it really sort of kicked in in 2011 when we started the work. Um, so it's been a long time coming. Yeah. yeah, it feels like it's sort of been sat in the corner of my life growing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a, a decade of thinking about it. How does it feel for it to have gone from something you were thinking about 10 years ago to a reality with a, a building and people working here and all these events going on and writers flowing through the building? Yeah, so it's strange. Partly it, it, it's kind of, you go, well, that was a year, that was three years, that was five years, that was 10 years. And part of it's felt like pushing water uphill at times. Uh, it's been really tough. Some of it's been just immensely enjoyable and kind of creative and productive. It's been all sort of all sorts of things, but it feels like it's, it hasn't been as long as it has. It's, right. Time speeds up. It's one of those things where it feels like it was very slowly and then very quickly. Yeah. So yeah, the build-up's massive, and then all of a sudden it's here and it's open. Yeah, I know. And it's it's kind of what I found with the capital project was that I was always worrying about something about nine months in the future, ten months in the future. So whatever was happening now whether that was nothing happening in just fundraising or an endless grant applications and et cetera, or whether it was literally someone digging a hole with a big stick, hole digging stick in our ground. I would, would always be thinking, yeah, but nine months time, what are we gonna to have to do then? And all of a sudden it's here and that sort of nine months is gone. And it's quite hard to pull yourself back from that and just look at what is happening now. Yeah, it's kind of thing that's all consuming. Yeah. And, and gets in the way like a barrier in your brain, so getting past that. It was effectively it. like running a separate parallel organisation, the, the capital projects. We had separate staffing working on it, we had external contractors, we had separate funding, we had separate accounting reporting. So it was literally like holding up two organisations at once and kind of slowly putting it back in, inside the other organisation has been the challenge this year. Mm. What was the impetus for shifting from Writer's Centre Norwich, which is what we used to be called, towards the National Centre for Writing? It was 
kind of um, like most things, it's it's a combination of different motivations and reasons. We since about two thousand and eleven, twelve, when we or ten, eleven, when we started our UNESCO City of Literature bid, we'd really grown our program and increased our staffing and did a lot more work internationally as well as sort of on a wider national partnership scale. But international work came first, and we sort of grew the organisation and its scale of work and ambition, and it. So Writer Centre Norwich stopped being, stopped feeling like a useful or an accurate way to describe what we were doing, and there was a um, there was a moment when also when we wanted to, um, you know, we there's no we never set out to get um, create a building for the sake of creating a building. You know, there are plenty of buildings around. No one needs pretty much more buildings. They can reuse stuff or whatever. What we wanted to do for why we wanted to add to Dragon Hall and create a new space was to kind of really unleash what we felt we could do with literature as an art form, with reading, writing, literary translation, and having a building, having the potential to bring people into the building, having the potential to exchange national and international artists, to um, earn money from the building to support our artistic and community and um, uh, schools work, all of that it felt like sort of making a new model for what literature organisations could do in this country because there aren't many literature organisations with buildings. Um, and so it, it kind of, in order to facilitate that change and that growth, we needed to, or it felt important to signal the change of our, the nature of our ambition and our remit and what we were really doing. So kind of the National Centre um, name, we could have chosen a different name. Um, but it, but it felt like that was the most accurate thing at the moment that described the nature and range and scale of our ambitions. It was never about nationhood, exploring the nationhood or the national implications of our art form. It was much more about describing how we wanted to organise, connect, share and, and explore what literature could do in our country and in our communities. So, you know, there were a complex of reasons for the name change, but it felt like it was catching us up. Um, it's a combination of the name caught up with the scale and nature of our work and also we wanted to sort of set out a new map for how uh, of ambition for how we worked and so it, it seemed to work. Yeah I think being in Norwich is not coincidental because Norwich does seem to attract writers mm. and literature both historically and now. Yeah. Um, but yeah we've kind of it's flipping it on its head, isn't it, from being an organisation that works nationally and internationally and we're in Norwich because it's a good place to work and yeah. do that kind of work rather than Norwich being the sort of the limits and definition of what we are. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's loads of really interesting... I mean, you can, anyone can trot out anecdotes to back up their position, but I was literally, <laughs> I was just talking to, you know, the director of a major international organisation last night who said that, that they had... Um, never been to Norwich before until they had their current job and had come through us and it kind of transformed their view of kind of you know the the, the importance of investing in centres of excellence outside London and, and we get that a lot and one of the reasons for calling ourselves National Boards a bit of a yeah we can be a really sort of kind of um, ambitious organisation and not be in London mm -hmm. and that's fine um, and in fact it's quite important. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. And I feel like even though we've taken the word Norwich out of the organisation's name, we're actually a far better place now 
to make a case for Norwich yeah. as a place to come and be creative. Absolutely, I really couldn't agree more. And the Norwich UNESCO City of Literature keeps it right at the heart of what we do, and that sits alongside. You know, Dragon Hall is a home for our UNESCO accreditation as well as the National Centre for Writing, and that's what we're kind of trying to explore. And we need to kind of embody what is potential, potentially powerful about the National Centre name and redefine it for us in our art form and not be worried about, you know, we're not trying to be the National Theatre, we're not trying to be the National Maritime Research Institute, we're not talking about being a repository for the nation's expertise of any art form, we're talking about being a place where our locality and our national kind of arts ecology can explore and experiment and do things together. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, you came on the podcast on episode one. Mm. when we launched and it's been a year uh, I only do podcasts with really big numbers attached to them it's like big anniversaries yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's my be- agent only lets me do <laughs> it's in between numbers it's just not important <laughs> how how have you found the first year because it's not like we've had a, a slow slow ramping up of activity you know we've had the Notwich gathering we've had the festival Noirage, worlds. we've had Worlds, yes, the new ILS has kicked off. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about a lot of this stuff on the podcast over the last year, but from your perspective, having kind of built up to the mm-hmm. moment of launching the National Centre for Writing and reopening Dragon Hall, what's the year felt like? Um, it, it's really interesting. So, you know, in some ways it felt like really just a, a busy full year of exactly what we should be doing, a culmination of what was already happening. We didn't start or design big new programs to for the opening year it was about filling us up with what we were already doing and letting that breathe which i think was important so it didn't feel like um we were imposing anything new on the organization we were just sort of expanding into our space using the space to its best capacity bringing the writers and translators into our residency bringing communities and organizations and partners into the building young people into the education suite and really exploring it there are loads of things, or there are, there are a good number of things I would have done differently. Um, but then again, I wouldn't have known to do them differently had I not done them in the way, or had I not kind of organised them in the way that they had been organised. I think that um, I'm really delighted with how the year's gone. It's, um, it's sort of, I don't know, it's been really surprising in lots of ways, kind of learning just the fundamental shift of operating permanently in a in a building in a venue setting changes all sorts of rhythms about the organization having writers and translators come and live and work with us on campus changes things again really adds a completely new um sort of dimension to what it feels like as an organization it's quite a useful reminder isn't it when you've got a writer just across the way yeah. all the time yeah it kind of grounds you in why you're doing it in Completely. The first place. even having kind of the new office and staff room has changed things so we have lunch together in different combinations you know it's not like the Boltons where we all sit down to a big <laughs> team every day but you know this having the staff room and a communal office where we're not split up into five different small rooms kind of on different levels kind of crowded into a, a non-table made space has just changed how we work um, so it's really interesting I think that kind of 60% of the things that have happened I could have predicted 30% I might have had a good guess at 10% I wouldn't have had a clue about and you know that's what makes the coming year or two really interesting because we've we've learned a lot of new things but there's going to be even more stuff that we learn over the coming year 
Uh, because it's the 50th episode and a year since we opened and because this is a Chris Gribble special, uh, we've had some questions come in from other people. Was it my ma'am? Uh, no, no. <laughs> Should I have asked her? Probably. <laughs> um, so yeah, just a handful of questions from other people which I'm going uh, to put to you. Starting off with a question from Peggy Hughes, oh. who uh, everyone of this parish. to the podcast knows. Yes. So this is, uh, what is the book that changed your life and made you want to do the work you do today? Oh, really interesting. Um, that, that, there are sort of two questions there. Um, so the book that changed my life isn't necessarily the one that made me want to do the work I do today. But uh, uh, there are two books that changed my life, I think. Um, one of them was Jermaine Greer's Female Eunuch, which I think I read and didn't understand, I'm sure, because I was about 13 or 14 and it was my sister, older sister's copy. And... Uh, and I probably understood about 40% of it, but I was just blown away by, um, I didn't know that you could, that that's what academics could achieve with scholarship in terms of changing how you viewed the world and mm -hmm. taking apart structures of thought in the way that she did, whether rightly or wrongly. And, you know, lots of people have different opinions about her and that book. But as a 14-year-old growing up in a small ex- mining village on the outs very, very outskirts of, of suburban Newcastle uh, in the 70s and 80s, in an era of not particular plenty, absolutely blew my mind. And I thought, oh my God, some people have a job where they sit around and think and come out with that. <laughs> Didn't have a clue that that was even possible. Um, and the second book that changed my entire life, I think, was um, A Boy's Own Story by Edmund White, um, which I... Um, bought furtively from W.H. Smith in Eldon Square in Newcastle in about 1983 or 4, possibly 5, can't remember which. And, um, and it just, and it was a, it, it's a coming of age story, the first of a trilogy of kind of based on his own life of growing up gay in North America. And, and, it, it, and it just, yeah, it absolutely terrified me at the same time as completely sort of kind of waking me up in a way. And I also, through it, I saw this is what books do. Um, you know, this is a closed, dead object with ink on a page. And if I open up this book, wherever I am, as it was on the bus on the way back from Newcastle in a snowstorm, and I missed my stop in the village where I lived and I had to walk back in terrible weather for about a mile and a half um, as a result of being so engrossed by it and not just reading the sex scenes, but also reading the sex scenes, um, and I just thought, God, this is a piece of dead wood with ink on, and I open it up, and I am somewhere else, and I'm not alone, and there are other people like me. I left a bit teary. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's what um, changed my life. Yes. Mm. Sounds like quite an origin story there, as you were trudging back through the snow. Yeah, about. I think I was just, uh, I think I was just wet, rather mm. than realizing the origins of my character. <laughs> <laughs> So it was yeah. kind of realising the power of books yeah, that probably absolutely. then drew you into working around yeah. the Yeah, um, books became kind of, uh, yeah, it, that, that's, um, I went on to study and do a master's and a PhD in kind of poetry and philosophy. And then I worked in publishing and kind of got involved in a poetry festival and a literature festival and various cultural things, and I've never sort of been that far away from books ever since, really. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was a... Um, so those are the two books, whether they 
kind of made me do this work or not. I don't know. But um, I think, yeah, it's interesting. Books and people, there are odd, there are those odd sort of pivotal moments where you suddenly get rotated about 40 degrees <laughs> and two years later you end up on a different continent almost. <laughs> yes, yeah. And then you're not sure whether you're looking back and applying yeah. story to that moment yeah. or whether it actually was what yeah. changed. And also stories are really tricky and dangerous because, you know, I, I think I've told, I've sort of told part of that boy's own story, Jermaine Greer story a few times and I think it changes slightly when you tell it and now I don't know whether it's exactly as it was but yes. something about it is exactly as it was. Yeah. Um, but you do tell yourself stories and you believe them. And There's originally no snowstorm and the next time it's going to be an earthquake <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> next time I'll be hiking up Kilimanjaro <laughs> after having... No. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's something very... Um, there's something almost predictive about your one's use of stories. You can they are incredibly liberational to explain your life to, but you can also talk yourself into not changing if you stick to your own stories too much mm -hmm. or if you don't allow for the fact that there might be some sort of shift in them. I don't know why I'm talking about that. I've just been thinking about that quite a lot recently. But, um, yeah, I've just never been that far away from books. They are the, effectively the closest thing to magic that we can create as humans you know, with, in mechanical form. And I just think that's never far from my consciousness. Yeah. Um, so next question is from Sam Ruddock, mm. uh, who we've worked with for many years, and he's now director of Story Machine Productions. And if you see one of his shows coming near you, you should check it out, because they're very interesting ways of looking at literature. Uh, he was asking, what do you think has been your secret to success here? In particular... What kind of techniques and approaches have enabled you to grow the organization so massively and, mm. and to achieve things like the building here? Because it's not kind of the standard route that a literature organization goes. No. So is there a particular attitude or approach that you think contributed to that? Um, that's, I think I'm a real believer that there are no secrets to success. There's not many secrets to anything, really. Um, whether it is kind of getting fit, whether it is saving money, whether it is building an organisation, or whether it's achieving kind of what you want to achieve, the, the steps to do it are usually really boring and predictable. And it's but it's just really hard to keep a view on on it. And so what I'm saying is that there's no single attitude or technique or method that um, has helped kind of this organization on the journey that it's taken. Um, I think there are a combination of factors. First of all, um, kind of one of the main things that's kind of allowed us to get where we are is Norwich. It is where we are. I don't know if this organization would have grown and changed um, in the way that it has done and thrived in the way it has done in, other, in another place. Norwich is a very specific context. Its size allows people to work together closely, it allows a degree of contact across kind of key organisations and bodies and people that is not always common in other cities that I've experienced. It's also because it's got the history that it has, it's got UEA here in the British Centre for Literary Translation. It has a, it has a set of individuals um, that have changed to some degree over the last 10 to 12 years that I've been here, but there's been some stability. So Norwich is a really important part of it. Um, I think... Um, kind of a degree of bloody-mindedness. 
I think always helps and, and that's sort of um, basically um, if someone tries to do something sort of really tenaciously and they fail um, they're usually described as obsessed and if they try tenaciously and achieve something and they're successful they're usually described as inspired <laughs> and there's no difference apart from the outcome but it, what lies underneath it is a degree of kind of um, of prioritization and um, bloody-mindedness that you wanted to achieve something so you basically you make yourself into the human equivalent of water and you will find a way to get through whatever happens and so that's what I've kind of not just me by any chance by any stretch of the imagination but it's been the people around in the organization our board and our stakeholders have all had part of that attitude and thought we're gonna do this we will find a way it's unlikely there isn't an organisation that's done this in this way before. Um, you know, there wasn't uh, English UNESCO City of Literature at the time. There wasn't a national centre. There wasn't a building or based organisation like ours at the time. But there is now, and together we've done that. Collaboration, absolutely cr critical. Um, having a degree of um, opportunism helps. Um, there's nothing wrong with a bit of opportunism um, it, as long as it's not at the expense of other people and places and organisations. Um, if there is an opportunity um, that you think will, that you're in a position to capitalise on and do something productive and enabling with, then I think go for it. Um, and a bit of entrepreneurialism, um, a bit of cheek, um, and um, a bit of um, I got to, uh, Andrea Stark was the director of the Arts Council in the East of England at the start of this process and up, up until about halfway through the process of us becoming opening Dragon Hall and when we are kind of went to talk to her about wanting Norwich to join the UNESCO Cities of Literature Network, the Creative Cities Network, when there are only about 25 in the world at that point and there are only four cities of literature at that time. She said, uh, I understand why I want to do it, completely get the reason for it. I don't know how you do it either, but if you apply to us for um, a reasonably smallish bit of funding that we'll keep quite strategically loose, just go and behave like you are one with those people, <laughs> and at some point they'll all start thinking of you as one, and yeah. it was great. And it's a really good piece of advice for life. Mm. Um, you know, go and behave like you're already there, and at some point you either discover that you don't want to be there and change your mind, or you'll end up doing and being what it is that you want. Yeah. It doesn't apply if you're trying to pretend to be a neurosurgeon. Don't try and <laughs> be that if you're not qualified. Yeah. Some exceptions. Some apply. exceptions apply. Conditions apply. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so next up, uh, it's actually a sort of two-part question from two people. So Andrew Burton, mm. who again we've worked with several times over the years, uh, he asked how writing can contribute to the current climate change emergency. Uh, and Tim Clare, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, mm. and his book The Ice House came out a few months back, um, he asked how arts festivals can help with dealing with their carbon footprint. So when you have international festivals and gatherings of writers, you have them flying in from all over the world. You know, we, we do that kind of thing yeah. as well, whether it's people coming in for the Norwich Crime Writing Festival or NNF or some of our more international gatherings and the residencies here. And Tim was asking, what can we and other arts organisations do to 
if not make a positive contribution to, to that issue, then at least avoid making a negative one. Yeah. Oh, so two part question. So if I start with Tim's, um, so on the practical level, there are, um, there's quite a lot that we can do. Um, some of it's really um, quotidian and dull but essential. So as an organisation, we work with the Arts Council and with an organisation called Julie's Bicycle to monitor our carbon footprint, our, everything from our staff travel through to our lighting, electricity, utility bills, our use of photocopier paper down to our per square foot carbon use impact as a building. And we take we use that analysis and that data to try and reduce that on an annual basis. And um, they share expertise to help us do that as an organization, which is really good and helpful. And having a building has increased that sort of degree of um, responsibility. I think kind of having a building that in the main was built in the uh, 15th century is top recycling in many <laughs> senses. You know, we haven't, but partly we have built new. So we built new with a view to low environmental impact. And so we have to think about that permanently. Um, on a festivals basis and travel basis, it's a really interesting question. Again, on a very practical level, um, we <laughs> Um, I don't know why I'm thinking of the comparison between single-use plastic and single-use authors. Um, so we try not to employ single-use authors. <laughs> if authors are coming into the country, we try and make sure that we're sharing them with other festivals in the country, other organisations, so that we make the most of their presence, so they're not flying in and out on single trips. On a more um, kind of thoroughgoing basis, we've just... Um, started a conversation with the 28 UNESCO Cities of Literature around a project for this coming year to look at putting together um, an environmental impact manifesto for our collective literature festivals, thinking about how we can reduce the carbon footprint, how we can work around travel issues, how we can um, do everything from kind of the single-use plastic lanyards and marketing materials through to um, outdoor events, environmental impact, and waste um, materials. So we're going to be developing a, a shared policy and commitment for that. And there's also a lot of good work in the UK that's happened around that too. It's a really tough one because you don't... There, everything that you do is effectively has a negative impact on the environment in terms of carbon burden, and it's about minimising that. And at the same time, you want to honour the fact that there is something very particular about a face-to-face -face meeting with an artist, an author, and a writer. And um, you, I would be loath to say uh, you can only, people in certain places can only see writers and artists that are near them, because that automatically sort of privileges those people from massive urban centres or places of exchange and connectivity, and not others, and Norwich is not one of those places, even though, you know, it's a nice, it, it's, a, it's very well connected in lots of ways. So it's about finding that balance. Um, but we're, we're committed to uh, one of the reasons why we got, um, why we've sort of put in a, a kind of a, some technology and a media um, facility in our new education spaces so that we can look at um, narrow and broadcasting opportunities for writers and for activities and workshops so we can avoid some of that, those issues. And we can make accessible things that are happening here to people without having to travel here, if that's an option. But I think it's, um, again, a little bit like um, there's no secret, single secret to success. There's no single answer 
to improving environmental impact. It's a, an ongoing process of modifications and innovation that we need to be better at. So Ian Nettleton, who is one of our mm -hmm. regular tutors, uh, has an interesting question, which uh, I'll read it out. So in Salem's Lot, Ben Mears says the following. I think that an evil house attracts evil men. Do you believe a thing can be inherently evil? So is Dragon Hall a bit like <laughs> Marston House in Salem's Lot, but in that it attracts writers? And can the same be applied to Norwich? I was going to put you going to say, is Dragon Hall evil? I know, you have to wait for the end of that question. <laughs> That's so, it's, do you know what? Um, as a child, I have got such strong memories of watching the TV serialisation of Salem's Lot. And there's a moment where there's the scratching on the window pane of the witch's fingernails. And I was haunted by that as a child for years. And it's just brought that flooding back. I just associated that now with yeah, where you work. I'm Sorry. just going to think about Dragon Hall forever now with scratchy finger pane. Anyway, um, do I think Dragon Hall, um, I don't think it attracts writers per se, um, necessarily. I think it attracts stories because it's such a massively peopled building, its history, even the site it's on before Dragon Hall was built in the 15, 15th century. You know, there's evidence of human habitation on this very spot going back to Anglo-Saxon times. And there's almost, that's almost solid habitation for, I don't know, 1500 years. And you just think, God, the amount of accreted story and experience and just humanity on this site is just slightly overwhelming. And for that reason, I think that even in the architecture, you know, the room we're sitting now, we can see doorways and arches and bricked up and mortared over arches that shows that this building has been moved around internally, externally, the street has risen around it as the soil has built up over the years and parts of it have sunk. You know, this is, it's like a living part of the, of the city. And so there are stories all through this building. And I think it's partly because it was built as a place of exchange, of commercial exchange of goods that brought people from everywhere to this spot and they were here for a purpose to communicate with each other, to make money, to swap goods. You know, and there's just something of that sense of commerce in its wider sense about it. And that's kind of what literature is. It's, it's that sort of messenger. It's the Athena god, which I think is what Margaret Atwood described about Dragon Hall, is, you know, that literature is the messenger. And kind of that is what happens. I realise I didn't ask, answer Andrew Burton's question about what literature can do for mm. addressing the climate challenge. And it's that function. It's about being the messenger. It's about finding roots and stories through the impacts of what's happening, not necessarily just describing what's happening in bold terms. That's a scientific report. What literature can do is demonstrate the human impact of what's happening in our world and can connect you to places which may feel remote, but ironically may contain people's stories, events that are almost identical to what's happening in your own individual life, your community life, or your, your social world. Whether you want to call, you know, someone described Margaret Atwood's sort of Oryx and Craig books as cli-fi, you know, the sort of cli climate-based science fiction, <laughs> or whether that's a message from the future, or whether you want to look at um, something like William Faulkner's um, kind of early work as, as a kind of early environmental or ecological warning around humanity and nature, you know, it's always there. Um, and literature effectively brings those dispatches back to the home front. Yeah. And that's what it can do. Um, that's one of the things it can do. It can do loads of things. There's other things it can't do. You know, literature can't take the place of um, 
parliamentary debate, economic exchange, or kind of a mutually agreed social contract or a written constitution, thank God, because imagine what that would be in literary form, um, but it can do lots of other things. Yeah, I think books are kind of like little empathy machines. Yeah, they, they yeah, amongst other things, it's, they absolutely are those those things, yeah. Um, they're not necessarily, um, you know, books are as just and unjust as people are. <laughs> so it, it's easy to load too much expectation onto a book. Um, and it's easy to load too much expectation onto a place as well. I think that, um, you know, Dragon Hall, for example, would be nothing had it not been for the um, work of the Norfolk and Norwich Heritage Trust volunteers from the 70s through to the mid-2000s who must have invested hundreds of thousands of man and woman hours in expertise and renovating and researching and pulling this place back from the brink. Um, and so you think actually their story is here as well. And you know, places are basically sort of created from the stories that we weave around them. Um, and that's where they get their power. Mm -hmm. So while we're, while we're talking about books and their power, um, Vicky Maitland, who has been on the podcast as well, mm. uh, she asked a, uh, a classic podcast question. So best book of the last year? <sighs> best book of the last year. Oh, I should have been prepared for that one. <laughs> It was an awful um, question to ask, isn't it? It is, because I suddenly sort of get lots of crowded... All of a sudden my brain is very crowded and I can't think of a single answer. So, um, Ali Smith's Spring, I just loved. Um, and, I, and I just think it's a very special thing she's doing with that planned uh, kind of quartet of books. So this year, for example, last year, I finally, after the advice of much more intelligent and patient friends, read Mick Heron. Uh, his um, kind of slow horses spy books, and I just completely fell for those and read <laughs> six of them in the last year, and just think, hurrah, my life is better for having done that. I think of Max Porter's second novel, Lanny, and I think I remember when I finished that, and um, someone, um, I was uh, someone next to me in, in public transport, sort of patting my arm because I was crying a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can remember the the variety of responses in the office as that book kind of. Rotated yeah. around. Yeah, and and there's all sorts of things. I, I, I think um, I think of some of the um, non-fiction uh, that I've read as well and some of the political books. I think of, it's slightly older than the year, but I read Masha Gessin's um, book on kind of, uh, on uh, kind of democracy and the Soviet Union. And I think, wow, um, thank goodness I'm around for that. I read James Bridle's book on kind of the digital age and the internet and you know, just tremendous. Um, I think well, I've just finished um, Jan Carson's novel, uh, Firestarters, set in sort of Belfast. And, you know, you just think, hurrah, someone new who, well, you know, she has written other books, but this is, I think, only her second novel. And you just think it's fantastic. Um, I want to hear more of that voice. It's really hard. I can't do a single book. It's a very cheaty answer. It was, yeah. <laughs> bad. Uh, another question from Sam, which was about personal ambitions that have potentially had to go on the back burner while mm. you've been developing Writer Centre Knowledge and National Centre for Writing and doing the Capital Project here, yeah. which, like we were saying earlier, was this kind of all-consuming thing for best part of a decade, yeah. really. Um, are, are there other things? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you balance your work with everything else in your life? 
Uh, I think like most people, you, you don't. You just do the best you can at the point in time. Um, and it's sort of, um, I think I find myself, um, I get really annoyed with myself when I hear myself moaning about being too busy or being tired because of work and stuff, because it's a choice. Um, and I have to remind myself of that. <laughs> and that everyone's got choices. But it, it has been a bit all-consuming at times. Um, we all make really tiny decisions all the time that lead us into either repeating where we are or to radically changing our lives without knowing that that was the thing that tipped the balance. Um, and I, I think it's, you make your choices. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I don't have children. Um, I have two very grumpy cats, but I don't have children. Um, and kind of work feels to me like and what I've always thought of work from being quite young was, if not vocational, then certainly um, externally directed. It's not a means, you know, if I was an absolutely passionate forger of new metal bells as my hobby, for example, people do make bells, I only discovered this recently, um, then, you know, I might have just got a job to allow me to make as many bells as I could in my spare time, but I'm not. I don't have that kind of, um, I'm not working to fund a lifestyle or to fund a passion. Um, my job is integral, an integral part, one of the number of who I am and what I choose to spend my time and efforts doing expresses those values as well and what I want to achieve expresses those values. So it feels quite important to me. Not always. I mean, there, there have been moments in dank Februarys when I just thought, oh, fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to run away and run a cake shop in the Outer Hebrides, um, which I occasionally still fantasise about. <laughs> but, but then you would inevitably, over time, transform it into yes. the National Centre for Cakes. Probably, yes. Or I'd have a capital project, or yes. I don't know. Or I'd have a global cake enterprise. <laughs> it's, it's not... Um, yeah, I don't want to kind of grow things for the sake of growing things. I just think it's exciting mm. to see what you can do. Um, but so there is a, you know, um, I jokingly refer to it as my work-work balance, but um, <laughs> there's a degree to which that is unfortunately true. Yes. So one more, one more question from Peggy, which is, who would win in a fight? Mm. Jane Austen or George Eliot? <sighs> well... I think how it would play out is that I think George Eliot would probably look like she was about to trounce J.A. up until the last minute when <laughs> J.A.'s patience and strategy would win out and she'd flip George in the last moment and come out with a knockout victory at the end. So I'm going for Jane. Yeah? Yeah. There you go. That's a definitive uh, answer there. I think that, that, I can't imagine there's another argument about how that would turn out, to be honest. I think that's pretty infallible as an explanation. I like how precise that answer was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no other alternative, I feel. <laughs> so, next 10 years, mm. do you have a notion of, not necessarily this organisation... Turning all my creative energy into the field of ice dance, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing you've been waiting to get onto. It is. I'm coming out as a figure <laughs> skater. <laughs> but aside from that, literature feels like it's been in a slight state of trying to figure out where it sits yeah. in the 21st century for, for a while now and for the next 10 years and in terms of how organisations like this fit into that mm. ecology, do you have a sense of direction there? Um, I think 
I don't know if I do have a, an explicit sense of direction. I kind of, um, Bill Thompson, who used to be on our board here, and is a marvellous man and journalist and thinker, um, always sort of used to say to me, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Um, I think he was quoting someone else, but I'm happy to attribute it to Bill. Um, and if there's a real degree of truth to that, and it's often only in retrospect that that can be identified, but there, are, you know, the future is seeded here already. Um, I think that organisations like ours, like New Writing North, um, like our partners um, across the country, are already taking literature in the ways that it's going to go. You know, we see, for example, literature is not just mainstream publishing, but we see a lot of publishers now running courses, inclusivity, access, diversity schemes, um, writers, resilience programs and engagement programs that kind of our organisations pioneered 8, 10, 12, 15 years ago that are now mainstream. We're, we're doing new things now, we're doing public engagement, we're doing, we're doing innovation projects, entrepreneurial projects, we're exploring where literature goes in the world. These are the things that are kind of ahead of that kind of uh, mainstream track and you know, that's what will grow into the mainstream. I think that, you know, literature is too easily mixed up with the platforms on which it's consumed. Um, our organisation, we're not a publisher as such, we're not a library, we're not a bookshop. And those, all of those things are brilliant, but they aren't the art form. They're platforms, they're points of access and their development, uh, they support development in, in large parts, in large ways of what they do, but they're not specifically focused on those things. We have this amazing opportunity to focus on the art form in whichever direction it goes, with writers, with translators, with readers you know, in book form and not in book form, in performance, in digital forms. And so, you know, that freedom is is what will kind of drive us to experiment and change and do more exciting things. And I think kind of people sort of becoming, they, a growing awareness that the art form of writing and reading and literary translations um, are becoming more liberated from the platforms as a result of new technologies and new social forms of engagement with the art form that those guys who are stuck with very particular platforms are going to struggle more. Well, thank you, Chris, for coming on today's episode. Thank you. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, if you have any questions and want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus. And how about you, Chris? Where can people uh, find you? NCW Chris. That's that work-work balance yeah. coming out there again. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a different Twitter account as well. Ooh, a secret uh, one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, which is really secret because it's at Chris Gribble. But <laughs> they <laughs> would never locked. get. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, you can also contact the National Centre for Writing, send in your questions. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Search for us on Facebook. You can email us info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and sign up to our newsletter over on the website, which is nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. Thanks again, keep writing, and I will catch you on the next episode when I'll be talking to Kelsey Beecham, the lead writer on the highly acclaimed recent video game Outer Wilds. I'm very excited. <laughs>